0: Praise the Lord, church. Um, uh, My name is Dennis Matthew. I'm a deacon here at this church, and it's a great privilege for me to to share the gospel with you today and to preach from Mark chapter 6. As some of you have been here with us, you know that we've been preaching through the book of Mark, and uh, now we'll be diving into uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. You know, I know that uh, whenever I preach, if you ask Ajay, you know, separately in a corner. I'm sure he'll tell you that whenever I preach, it makes him a little bit nervous because I have this tendency to just speak off the cuff, a little bit like I'm doing right this minute. And so that just, you know, you know when I started preaching, I would always have like 10 bullet points. Um, and over the last five or six years, that's grown into a seven page manuscript. Uh, so things have changed a little bit. I'm a very quick learner. A couple years ago when I was preaching, It was a hot day like this and so on the way here, naturally I stopped to get an iced coffee. And so as I was preaching, it was hot and I was sipping on my iced coffee. And at one point I turned and looked at Ajay, mortified that I was sipping on an iced coffee and preaching the word. Uh, So I looked at Dunkin' Donuts and kept going and I have my glass of water here this morning. So let's dive into the scripture. You know, I don't know about you, but There's something that I really enjoy a lot about a flashback that's incorporated into a TV show or a movie. You know, I feel like a flashback just adds a whole new dimension to the program, right? It's something different. It's unexpected. All of a sudden, you're in the moment and then you're somewhere else. And uh, Anybody watch Lost? Anybody ever seen Lost? I'm sure you all have seen Lost. And so Lost was like the masters of this, right? You're in the moment and you don't understand what's going on and then all of a sudden they go back to a few days or weeks or months or years and it's like a huge revelation. And then you finally understood, oh, that's why this guy's saying what he's saying or that's why they're doing what they're doing. And I always thought, wow, this is like such a modern, innovative way of writing. This is so modern. Well, turns out it's been happening for thousands of years. And our friend Mark is doing the same exact thing. He's inserting a flashback. From chapters 1 through 5, he's teaching intently about all the works of Jesus. And he talks about him preaching and teaching, healing the sick and casting out demons and sending out the disciples. And then all of a sudden, in verse 14 of chapter 6, he inserts this flashback of John the Baptist and how he died. You know, we haven't heard of John the Baptist for chapters now. If we go back to chapter one, Mark mentions John the Baptist and he mentions that he's a little bit of this quirky character, he's out in the desert, he's preaching, he talks about how John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, but then you don't hear about him again. We come to chapter six, starting with the first few verses we see Jesus sending out the disciples two by two to go preach and then all of a sudden mark decides to get us up to speed on what happened to our friend john the baptist and so that's what we're going to be looking at today you know the passage opens with this question that cannot be ignored it opens with the question who is jesus who is jesus And then as you delve into the passage, you find that there are two individuals, John the Baptist and Herod, who respond to the question of who is Jesus very differently. And their response profoundly impacts the way they live their life. That's what I want us to focus on today. This passage was a little bit different than what I typically preach because the narrative is so compelling Right. If you read these verses, you just read a made-for-TV movie. Adultery, lies, wealth, power, murder. So what I'd like to do is to just go verse by verse and share a little bit about what I have learned as I studied this passage. Starting with verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So what exactly is it that King Herod heard of? Well, if we go back just a few verses to verses 7 through 13, we find that Jesus was sending his disciples two by two, and they're traveling from city to city and from village to village, proclaiming. Christ crucified. They're proclaiming the Gospel message. They're proclaiming the message of repentance, and they're proclaiming and doing great and mighty works in Jesus' name. But you see, it wasn't like today, you know? Think about it. There's no smartphone. There's no Facebook. There's no Twitter. There's no Periscope. There's no Snapchat. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. But those social media tools did not exist. I only literally just downloaded Snapchat, I didn't know what it was. Um, So imagine, everyone is going person to person to person. Have you heard of the great and mighty works of Jesus? And it's spreading like wildfire. Is he Elijah? Is he a prophet? Is he John the Baptist? Who is he? This question, my friends, must be answered. And it's a question which can't be ignored by any of us. Many of you may be sitting here today, asking this very question, who is Jesus? This is a question that was asked for thousands of years by millions of people of every race and background, young and old, rich and poor, black, brown, white, whatever you want, have been asking this question. And I want you to know that people continue to ask this question, even today. You know, we had a GCM, one of our small groups uh, uh, get-togethers, probably uh, about a year ago. And I remember we got together and we started talking about some of the challenges in sharing the gospel and sharing about Christ. And I remember making an uh, emphatic point because everything I say has to be emphatic. And so I was making the point, well, one of the challenges in sharing the gospel is that nobody even wants to know about God. No one is asking who is God. No one is asking who is Jesus. And so how do you even talk about Jesus when no one is even asking the question? Well, I left that service and God promptly showed me that I am a fool, which is not very difficult. You know, as we went to one of our friends, one of my coworkers, we were spending time at their home. And it was right around the time that the Pope was visiting Philadelphia. And you remember, for those of you who are here, that you know, the whole city stood still. And these folks in particular were so enthralled by the Pope. Everything he said, everything he did, everywhere he went, I think they downloaded the app and they were following him You know, when he left on this helicopter everywhere. And so we were there for a few hours. And the entire time, he had the Pope coverage going on and we were just enthralled and so I said, man, this is really interesting. I mean, I was mildly interested the Pope was coming and so we started to have a conversation and he said, yeah, look at the Pope, look at all the good things he's saying, look at all the good things he's doing but as we started to have more discussion, it was so clear and abundant to me that his underlying question was who is God, who is God and who is this Jesus associated with the Pope and what is this all about? And we started to have discussion and it opened a door for us to invite them to church and to come and hear more. And we continue in that discussion and relationship. But the point I'm making my friends is that we need to come and build relationships with friends and family and know that they may be asking this question. They may not be coming up to you and saying, Hey, who is Jesus? But in their actions and in the way that they in what they do and in their interests and in their struggles, that question may be there. We just need to identify the opportunity to have those discussions and not think like I thought a year ago, like a fool. Well, nobody's asking about God, so what do I have to say? I think people are asking more than we realize. And we need to identify those opportunities and build those relationships to have those discussions. You know, we find in the passage that John and Herod have two completely different responses to this question, based on the way they live their lives. So if you weren't with us when we preached on chapter 1, let me give you a little bit of background on John. So in chapter 1, it says that he was called to prepare the way. Prophetically, he was called to be the forerunner for Jesus Christ and to come and proclaim and prepare for Christ's arrival. You know, if we look at uh, the scriptures, it says that he was, wearing a camel's, he was wearing camel's hair, a leather belt, he ate locusts and wild honey. I don't give you this background uh, to discuss his questionable, questionable fashion sense or bizarre dietary habits, but I give you the background to know that he was a forerunner called to preach and prepare the way for Christ. And so it's not surprising when we see that John's response to who is Jesus is emphatic and bold and proclaims that he is the Messiah. And he lives his life preaching the truth and preaching repentance, and ultimately he dies for that truth. His response had a profound effect on the way he lived and the way he died. But we'll find but we will, what we'll also find is that Herod's response is the exact opposite. He doesn't sacrifice anything. And he is more infatuated with his sin than he is with repenting and heeding John's call. He loves the pleasures of this world. So let's continue in the scripture to learn a little bit more about this Herod. Verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. You know, what a bizarre response. What an odd response. Did he go and investigate? Did he go and do some research? Did he send out people to find out who this Jesus was? Why would his immediate assumption be that, hey, this guy that I killed just resurrected from the dead? And so I started to investigate, hey, was resurrection a common occurrence? Well, I found that resurrection, not a common occurrence today and not a common occurrence back then but it gives you some context for the way he viewed John. Right? He did view John as a godly man. He did view John as someone that was sent from heaven, sent from God. So much so that he, was, he said it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that God had raised him back from the dead and sent him back to preach and to teach. You know, I'm not sure how much time had passed between the beheading and this uh, present day when uh, all of these rumors were flying about and the question was being asked, who is Jesus? But it's clear that Herod's conscience was weighing on him. The guilt was weighing on him. And he immediately jumps to conclusions about who this Jesus is. He jumps to conclusions and assumes that it's John the Baptist. You know, many of us are asking the same question. And my ask to you is please don't jump to conclusions. Please don't jump to conclusions. Many of us sitting here have grown up in church. Many of us sitting here know all about religion. We know about Christmas and Easter. We know about all the holidays. And we think we know everything there is to know about Jesus. You know, I grew up in the church. My father is a pastor. My grandfathers are pastors. I have uncles and cousins who are pastors and missionaries. We grew up in Boston, and I grew up in a black Pentecostal church. So I'm sure many of you are like, man, that explains so much. I finally get him, I know what's going on. And so we would go to church in the morning, and then we would go to church in the afternoon because my dad was a pastor of an Indian congregation. All that to say, for years of my life, I grew up in church. But I still didn't have all the pieces. I knew Jesus, and I I, I knew there was something there, and I had started to build a relationship. But the gospel was still unclear. And it was only in my late 20s after coming to Seven Mile Road and after exploring the Gospel for myself and after I put aside all my preconceived notions about who I thought Jesus was that I finally understood the depth of my sin and the breadth of the love of Christ and the work that he did on the cross I finally understood who he was and what he was all about and that he was my Savior and that I was nobody not worthy of life, but for him who died on the cross. It transformed me. And my ask to all of you who are sitting here asking who is Jesus, my ask is please don't jump to conclusions like Herod, but come with an open mind and an open heart and sit under the preaching and teaching to find out who he is. Let's continue in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I mean, talk about sordid. Talk about a messed up situation. So what all is happening here? Well, we see a lot is going on and none of it is good. John had been thrown into prison, bound up. An innocent man with no sin, no wrongdoing, is sitting in prison. And what's going on with Herod? Herod had taken for himself the wife of his half-brother. You know, in some circumstances, if, if Philip had died and he was doing something generous, by, taking on, by supporting his widow, that would have been great. The issue is that Philip is alive and well, and so he's living this adulterous life with his half-brothers, and had taken his half-brother's wife as his own. Herod is living in sin, and yet John is the one that's sitting in prison. You know, at the end of the day, it was John's preaching that ended up getting him into trouble, right? It wasn't his personality, it wasn't his quirky behavior. He was one of the most popular preachers of his day. But as I had mentioned before, John was prophesied to be the forerunner for Christ. And so he was given authority to preach the gospel and to preach repentance, and he preached with authority from heaven itself. But we also see that as part of his ministry, he was preached with great humility his humility is clear. Every time he preaches, he points back to Jesus as one that is greater than him that is going to be coming. And he preaches with great integrity. Even Herod himself says that John is a holy and righteous man in the coming verses. John preaches with authority and humility and integrity. And that gives him an audience with, John, with uh, Herod and Herod is perplexed. He can't turn him away because of the way he preaches in this manner. You know, the beautiful thing is that John is simply a forerunner for the, for the, for the ministry of Christ. Because as we look at John's ministry, we see that it just gives us a preview to Christ's ministry. Christ was, pre- and what his preaching and teaching would look like. We see Jesus is an even better John who preaches with authority from high as the Son of God. He preaches with great integrity, living a sinless life, even under great temptation. And he preaches with great humility and ultimately dies with great humility for you and I. And so why do I say all this? I say this because we are called in the same way. Can you imagine that we have been given the same authority? not because of anything that we've done, not because of any good that we have, but we have been given the same authority to preach the gospel that was given to John the Baptist and to Peter and Paul. We, my brothers and sisters, have the authority to go and preach the same gospel. I want that to sink in for just a minute. I want us to soak that in. We have done nothing to Earn that authority, that authority is given to us by Christ because we are his sons and daughters. But there's more that we can learn. If we look at John, we see the humility. And what I ask for us today is that we also have great humility when we go out with the gospel. You know, it's easy to look around this world and to point fingers and to be judgmental and to be critical, look at their lives, look at what they're doing. It doesn't make any sense. Even amongst ourselves as we talk it can be really tempting for us to be harsh and critical of others. But my ask is that we model John and have great humility knowing that it's not we who saved ourselves but Christ and the same Christ that saved us can save the world. And so as we go forth to preach, we preach with authority, but we preach with great humility. The verse also says that John had great integrity, which is something that I want to get into further in the passage. It's not calling us to be perfect, but Christ is calling us to put away our sin. So let's take a look at verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You know, Herodias's response is very different than Herod's, right? Herodias' response is clear. I have no interest in hearing from this guy and I want him dead. I want him gone, gone from the face of the earth. Herod's response is so different. Herod doesn't actually know what to do with him. And killing him is actually the furthest thing from his mind. He doesn't know what to do. He really enjoys listening to John. He really enjoys it. He's sucking it up. He's taking it in. He enjoys listening to John. But at the same time, he has no interest in putting away his sin. He enjoys his sin. He enjoys the adulterous affair that he's having. He enjoys his power. And his pride will not let him confess that he has done anything wrong or admit to any weakness. The question for us, my friends, today is, is there sin in our lives that we hold in higher esteem than the Gospel? Is there sin in our lives that we hold, that we enjoy more than we enjoy the Gospel? Because the truth is, many of us do enjoy hearing the Gospel. Many of us do enjoy coming and hearing the Word of God and the preaching and the teaching. Many of us do enjoy participating in small groups. But the question is, is there sin that we enjoy just a little bit more? Is there sin in our lives that we enjoy just a little bit more than the preaching and the teaching and the good news of the gospel today? You know, I can relate to Herod. I imagine Herod pacing back and forth, struggling because on the one hand, he hears the gospel message and he hears the word to repent. And on the other hand, he has this sin that he's holding on to so tight. You know, I can relate and I can understand because I can relate. I can relate 100% to what Herod is going through. You know, when we first came to the church, this was, I, I was Herod. I was Herod 100% because on the one hand, I enjoyed hearing the gospel. And on the other hand, there was sin in my life. And as I grew in the gospel, as I grew in the word, as I grew to know Jesus, I quickly understood that these two things could not live in, together in parallel. That these two things conflicted with each other and I couldn't continue to hear the gospel and continue to allow sin to be in my life. So what did I do? The truth is there's no easy answer. There isn't like seven steps to running away from your sin. I had to start by being open and honest. And we have small groups. And so in the small group, for the first time in my life, in my late 20s, I don't know, I'm an old man, maybe early 30s, I admitted my sin. Something that I had never admitted to anyone, not my brothers, not anyone in the world. And I admitted and I said, there is sin in my life and I need help. I can't do this on my own. I need to repent, I need to be corrected, I need you to hold me accountable because I can't continue to live in sin and continue to listen to the gospel. So my my prayer today, brothers and sisters, is that we would be open and honest, that we would take the step of faith and do something that's gonna make us hugely uncomfortable but do this to save our lives so that we do not forfeit our souls. We are not in this by ourselves. God has given us brothers and sisters in the Lord, but we need to take that step of faith. We need to be open and honest and allow our brothers and sisters to encourage us, to pray for us, to correct us, to hold us accountable. This was Herod's issue. He was not going to allow anyone to hold him accountable. He's the king. No one would hold him accountable. We must be ready to be open and honest. And we need to find someone, and I pray that we would walk out of here and find someone that we can be open and honest with if there is sin that we hold in higher esteem than the gospel. Let's continue in the scripture In verse 21, but an opportunity came and Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. So I want, you to make sh- I want to make sure you understand what's going on here. This is the party of the century, right? Herod is celebrating his birthday, and he's going to celebrate it in style. I imagine they've got the red carpet rolled out. I imagine they've got the paparazzi with their stone tablets taking pictures of everybody. I mean, the who's who of society is there, all his buddies. Top business professionals, top military commanders, top nobles, they're all there to come and celebrate and have a great time with Herod. And I imagine that Herod was known for his ability to throw a good party, right? And so he's got all the food, he's got filet mignon and caviar, he's got lobster, he's got shrimp, he's got it all decked out, and he's got the finest wine, he's got craft beer, He's got scotch, I don't know, whatever you guys are into, he's got it. He's got more, he's got more choices than you can imagine. It's flowing, it's flowing everywhere. From the left and the right, the servants are doling it out like water. This is the party that's happening. And so what do you get the man that has everything, right? What do you get that guy? So annoying, right? So difficult. This guy has power. He has wealth. He has respect. What trinket are you possibly going to buy him to get him excited? Who knows the answer to that question? His wife. Of course, his wife knows how to push his buttons. His wife knows how to get him excited. And so Herodias decides, Herodias has her daughter from her first marriage come and dance for Herod and all his friends." I want you to understand that in verse 22, it doesn't provide a lot of description of the dance, right? But I want you to be sure that it wasn't a tap dance. It wasn't a ballet of any sort. Verse 22 actually covers a multitude of sins that are not spoken of. I imagine it to be like a ruckus bachelor party. And she's there to dance for the pleasure of all of those men and King Herod. And so she does this, and she does this so well. And now it's late into the evening, hours of drinking, hours of eating. She's danced, a seductive dance, to get everybody excited, including Herod. And in his drunken stupor, probably with his cup up, he gets up and he says, Only a drunk guy would do this. And he vowed to her, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Man, what a promise. What a commitment. This is not like a guy that's got like, you know, a couple of trinkets. He is one of the wealthiest men of that day and he says up to half my kingdom and he does this just to add more drama and intrigue to the night right oh my goodness now you can imagine the crowd all his buddies are like man this is amazing the night just keeps getting better and better the red carpet the paparazzi the drinking the eating and now the dancing and this great promise ask me whatever you wish So what happens? Herod, Herod, she, she puts on this great show. He makes this audacious promise, but he doesn't realize that he's about to regret the words that just came out of his mouth. He had an opportunity to repent, and now we find Herod deeper and deeper and deeper in sin. Let's take a look at verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? and the girl gave it to her mother when the disciples when his disciples heard of it they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb." You know the girl had no idea what to ask for. No clue, right? She's a teenager. This guy just offered half his kingdom. I don't know what to say. So who does she go to? She goes to her trusted advisor. Her mother. The mother that had orchestrated this whole event. She was counting on the fact that she wouldn't know what to ask for. She was counting on the fact that Herod would make these audacious promises. This is such a well-orchestrated, meticulous plan. Well, she has no hesitation. I know exactly what you should ask for. You should ask for the head of John the Baptist. So immediately she goes back to Herod and says, I want his head. Well, I imagine right that second, boom, Herod sobers up. Whatever drunken stupor he was in is gone. He is straight sober. You could have done a alcohol test on him three seconds ago, and he was over the limit. And that, that ass came, and boom, he is sober now. He immediately regrets. Immediately he regrets the oath. But there's no turning back. There's no turning back. All. He's in front of his boys. All his buddies are there. They're egging him on. They're there. He can't turn back. He had made oaths. He had made promises he should have never made. And now he's going to keep a promise he should have never kept. And so what happens? He immediately sends the executioner down. And John dies a gruesome and savage death. They chop off his head. And to make matters worse, they put it on a platter for all to see, and they bring it to the girl who then brings it to her mother. His disciples come and lay him in a tomb. You know, this is the story of two men who answered the question, who is Jesus, very, very differently. John the Baptist responds, Jesus is my Messiah, and I will live and die for him. Herod, on the other hand, refuses to put away his sin, refuses to sacrifice, and ultimately forfeits his soul. You know, as I thought about how to bring this all together, I found that Jesus does a great job of bringing it together. No surprise there. And so if we flash forward to Mark chapter 8, we see that Jesus actually asks his disciples the same question, and he has a beautiful response. So if we go to Mark chapter 8, 27 to 29, and then 34 to 36, we'll see what happens. When Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. What a beautiful response. You know, it's interesting, if you go back to Mark chapter 6, that right before the flashback of John the Baptist's death, as I mentioned, Jesus was sending out his disciples two by two. And it's almost as if this flashback was inserted to help us understand the cost of discipleship and the ultimate cost of the gospel. You see, those 12 disciples had lived with Jesus for years and they heard him preach and teach and share the gospel. They were with him for years as he healed the sick, he made the lame walk and the blind see, he raised the dead, he cast out demons. And 11 of those 12, went on and as the question was asked, who is Jesus? They proclaimed he is the Messiah and they dedicated their life to preaching and teaching and ultimately, they died the same death as John the Baptist, they gave their lives for Christ. And yet we see that there's one of the 12, Judas Iscariot, who had also been with Jesus when he was preaching and teaching when he was doing those great miracles, hearing the gospel message. But what is his response? His response is to betray Christ, to gain 30 pieces of silver, and to lose his soul, just like Herod. Brothers and sisters, the question remains and is being asked to each of us, who is Jesus? who is Jesus, and our response to that question will have a profound effect on the rest of our lives. My prayer for all of us today is that we would respond that he is our Messiah and that we would put aside the sin that we hold in higher esteem than the gospel and that we would live our lives for his glory and for his honor in the days to come. May God bless you with these words.